Welcome to Remembering Zion. I'm Scott Aniel. This is a new segment that I'm beginning as part of the By the Waters of Babylon podcast in which I read helpful resources that will help to set our minds on things that are above. In these first episodes, I will be reading excerpts from my book, Sound Worship, A Guide to Making Musical Choices in a Noisy World, published by Religious Affections Ministries in 2010. Introduction. Music is everywhere. It's in your car, it's in your home, it's on your TV, it's on your iPod, it's in the mall, it's at the restaurant, it's at amusement parks, parties, fairs, family reunions, and barbecues. And music is at church. You have choices. Never before in the history of mankind have there been so many musical choices. With relative ease, you can choose where to listen to music, when to listen to music, how long to listen to music, what artists to listen to, what style to listen to, what song to listen to, and how many times to listen to it. What you can't choose is to not choose. This is a book about making musical choices, but not just any choices. This is a book about making musical choices that are deliberately informed by the Word of God. It is about making choices that are discerning, wise, beneficial, and edifying. This book is about making musical choices that will bring glory to God. We live in a day of relativism, individualism, and pragmatism. Each of these vices presents significant challenges for making God-pleasing musical choices. Relativism teaches us that there is no right or wrong music. Individualism teaches us that we can choose whatever we happen to like. And pragmatism influences our theology of the church and convinces us to cater to the music preferences of the masses in order to draw them to our services. Making musical choices in our society is no easy task, but it is a task we must face well-informed and well-equipped. As a pastor, music director, and now the director of a ministry that seeks to help equip and inform believers for this task, I have a strong burden that we think biblically about these issues. In January of 2009, BMH Books released my first book, Worship in Song, A Biblical Approach to Music and Worship. In that book, I present a biblical, thoughtful, well-researched exploration of theological and philosophical ideas that can help believers understand music and worship. Worship in Song specifically targets pastors and other Christians who really want to understand the foundational issues influencing worship and music philosophy. This means that the book is a somewhat in-depth presentation intended especially for those who have at least some theological or musical education. Sound worship, on the other hand, was written specifically for the average Christian who wants to learn how to make God-pleasing musical choices. I have taken what I consider to be the most important questions behind today's debates and sought to answer them in a brief, engaging, clear way. You won't find many technical details in this book unless they are absolutely necessary. I have tried to explain and illustrate important points with examples with which you can readily identify. If you want to understand the research and technical explanations of any of the points in this book, pick up a copy of Worship and Song. This book is intended to give you a starting place. 
My prayer is that this book will help you wade through all of the myriads of musical choices you have for life and corporate worship. My hope is that you will gain what you need to make musical choices that are truly glorifying to God. Chapter 1. Does Music Matter? Does music matter to God? Should it matter to us? We are living in a day when people, even Christians, see music as unimportant. Enjoyable, yes, but necessary or important, no. We see this kind of thinking all around us. Music education is now considered extracurricular in schools. It's extra. It's not important. Support for the arts is waning in communities. Whereas families once viewed music as the highlight of the home, most families today have no interest. This kind of thinking has, of course, influenced the church as well. What we believe theologically is important, how we live is important, but music? It's just something extra God has given us merely for enjoyment. This certainly has ramifications for worship. If music is merely for enjoyment and is unimportant, then it really doesn't matter what kind of music we use for worship. God just doesn't really care. Or does he? In this chapter, I would like to demonstrate that music does indeed matter. It matters to God, and it should matter to us. Music matters scripturally. If we want to discern whether music matters to God, we must first examine the scriptures. What does the Bible have to say about music? The Bible refers explicitly to music around 1,200 times. That in and of itself is not necessarily significant. The Bible refers to plants around a thousand times as well. But when we consider the kinds of things that are linked with music in the Bible, or the contexts in which we find music in the Bible, it is clear that music matters. Music in Worship First, in the Bible, music is highlighted as an important part of worship, both Old Testament temple worship and New Testament church worship. In the Old Testament, we find record of much of what went on in Jewish society. Israel was a theocracy, so its religious, civil, and social activities were all intertwined. Much of what went on in society was related to its relationship with Yahweh, but wasn't necessarily set apart specifically for corporate worship. This is certainly true of some of the music we have recorded for us in the Old Testament. Music is used for all sorts of purposes in the Bible. There are work songs, war songs, love songs, songs for entertainment, and songs for derision, mourning, and lamentation. Since religion and society were intertwined in Jewish culture, the Old Testament relates many common uses of music in everyday life. But some things were set apart specifically for corporate worship in the temple. Before David's death, God allowed him to organize the temple worship that would come to fulfillment under Solomon. We find this organization in 1 Chronicles 22 and following. Only the Levites were permitted to do work in the temple, and at that time there were 38,000 men 30 years old and older. David divided these men for specific tasks. 2,400 were to be in charge of the work in the temple, 6,000 were to be officers and judges, 4,000 were to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. 1 Chronicles 23.5 
We find two things of interest in this. First, it is significant that only Levites were allowed to perform music in the temple. Only those who were specifically chosen and trained could serve in this capacity. Second, it is also noteworthy that God specifically says that he had designed music for his praise. David then gives these groups of men specific instruction about how they are to go about leading worship in the temple, and in chapter 25, he specifically addresses the musicians. It is quite significant that David took so much time under direction from the Lord to set apart these Levites for the purpose of making music in the temple. Furthermore, it is interesting to note how connected this music is with prophecy, direct revelation from God. So, in the organization of the temple worship in the Old Testament, God ordained that there be priests and leaders and gatekeepers and musicians, and these musicians were specifically involved in leading the corporately gathered people in praise of God. God set apart music as one of the things he deemed important for his worship. He didn't set apart farmers or shepherds or builders. He did set apart musicians. We see this clearly in the instructions for temple worship and in the Psalms as well. This is reflected also in New Testament church worship. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Here, in the epistle most directly focused on the church, we find a command to include music in our worship. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.16-17 makes this congregational emphasis even more clear with its discussions in this context of the church as one body. The terms used here signify both vocal and instrumental music, singing being a translation of a term to signify vocal singing, and making melody a translation of a term meaning to play on a stringed instrument. So in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, music, both vocal and instrumental, is directly connected to and even commanded for corporate worship, along with preaching, praying, giving, etc. We'll look more later at why God set apart music for congregational worship, but for now it's at least instructive that he did. This in itself should signify the importance and significance of music. Music and Truth Second, in the Bible, music is highlighted as an important vehicle to communicate God's truth. The parallel passage to Ephesians 5.19 addresses a second scriptural purpose for music that is found throughout the pages of the Bible. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul commands the church at Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in them, music being an important accompanying vehicle. I'll explain in chapter 3 why I don't believe that teaching propositional truth is all that is in view in this verse, but that is certainly part of the power of music. It can accompany and enhance God's truth. Songs throughout the Bible are filled with God's truth. Just survey the Jewish hymnal, the Psalms, and you will find enough theology to fill a systematic theology. God could have presented that truth in any number of ways, but he chose to do so with art, 
poetry set to an appropriate tune. We can find many examples of this in the New Testament as well. There are many passages in the epistles that scholars agree were written in a distinctly poetic form and likely set to music and sung in the early church. Examples include Philippians 2, 6-11, 1 Timothy 3, 16, 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, John 1, 1-18, Ephesians 1, 1-11, and 2, 14-16, Colossians 1, 15-20, and Hebrews 1, 3. Sacred songs are important vehicles for the communication of God's truth to his people. Music and Emotion Third, in the Bible, music is highlighted as an important tool to sanctify our emotions. In 1 Samuel 16.23, David uses music to soothe Saul's uneasy emotional state. We see the same kind of thing happening in Acts 16.25 when Paul and Silas were in prison. Instead of letting fear and depression overcome their spirits, they sang hymns. James 5.13 also talks about the emotional benefit of singing. It helps us express cheer. We'll talk about this more in chapter 3, but the Bible highlights music's ability to express and change emotion. This is the primary thrust of Colossians 3.16. The teaching that occurs through music is more than just teaching propositional truth to the mind. That can't be the only thing in view here, because there are other better means to teach the mind than with music. And the parallel passage, Ephesians 5.19, talks about pure instrumental music. Music by itself doesn't teach the mind. Music teaches the emotions. I'll elaborate more on this point in chapter 3. Music and Beauty Fourth, in the Bible, music is highlighted as an important means for expressing beauty, thus leading us to know supreme beauty. The glory of God is one of those sometimes nebulous concepts that we don't often really get our minds around. But when we look at the kind of language that is used in Scripture to describe God's glory, it is clear that the idea that most closely connects with glory is the idea of beauty. The Bible is filled with aesthetic terminology to describe God. God's glory is his beauty, and his beauty is magnified when his people delight in lesser forms of beauty. In the Bible, beautiful music is often used as a way to magnify and praise the beauty of God himself. Psalm 19.1 and Romans 1.20 both tell us how the beauty of creation displays the beauty of God and points man to him. Music, as an expression of God-like beauty, can do the same. We'll discuss the importance of beauty more fully in chapter 5. This is why music matters. It is not incidental or unimportant. It is not something neutral merely for our entertainment. Scripture is clear that music is significant for the Christian life and the glory of God. Music matters. Throughout the remaining chapters of this book, I will address and explain further the significance of each of these scriptural emphases. Still, some might insist that music doesn't matter, that it's unimportant. If you're still skeptical, I leave you with some testimonies from church history. Music matters historically. 
Basil of Caesarea. A psalm is the tranquility of souls, the arbitrator of peace, restraining the disorder and turbulence of thoughts, for it softens the passion of the soul and moderates its unruliness. A psalm forms friendships, unites the divided, mediates between enemies. For who can still consider him an enemy with whom he has sent forth on voice to God? So that the singing of psalms brings love, the greatest of good things, contriving harmony like some bond of union and uniting the people in the symphony of a single choir. A psalm drives away demons, summons the help of angels, furnishes arms against nightly terrors, and gives respite from daily toil. To little children, it is safety. To men in their prime, an adornment. To the old, a solace. To women, their most fitting adornment. It peoples the solitudes, it brings agreement to marketplaces, to novices it is a beginning, to those who are advancing an increase, to those who are concluding a confirmation. A psalm is the voice of the church, it gladdens feast days, it creates grief which is in accord with God's will, for a psalm brings a tear even from a heart of stone. Ambrose A psalm is the blessing of the people, the praise of God, the joy of liberty, the noise of good cheer, and the echo of gladness. It softens anger. It gives release from anxiety. It alleviates sorrow. It is protection at night, instruction by day, a shield in time of fear, a feast of holiness, the image of tranquility, a pledge of peace and harmony, which produces one song from various and sundry voices, in the manner of a stringed instrument. The day's dawning resounds with a psalm. With a psalm, its passing echoes. John Chrysostom God established the psalms in order that singing might be both a pleasure and a help. From strange chance, harm, ruin, and many grievous matters are brought in. For those things that are lascivious and vicious in all songs settle in parts of the mind, making it softer and weaker. From spiritual psalms, however, proceeds much of value, much utility, much sanctity. Augustine The sound of jubilation signifies that love born in our heart that cannot be spoken. And to whom is such jubilation due if not to God? For he is the ineffable one, he whom no words can define. But if you cannot speak him into words, and yet you cannot remain silent, what else is left to you if not the song of jubilation? the rejoicing of your heart beyond all words, the immense latitude of the joy without limit of syllables. Martin Luther We have put this music to the living and holy word of God in order to sing, praise, and honor it. We want the beautiful art of music to be properly used to serve her dear Creator and His Christians. He is thereby praised and honored, and we are bade better and stronger in faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. John Calvin And in truth, we know by experience that singing has great force and vigor to move and inflame the hearts of men, 
to evoke and praise God with more vehement and ardent zeal. Care must always be taken that the song be neither light nor frivolous, for that it have weight and majesty, as Augustine says, and also there is a great difference between music which one makes to entertain men at table and in their houses, and the psalms which are sung in the church in the presence of God and his angels. Now among the other things which are proper for recreating men and giving him pleasure, music is either the first or one of the principal. And it is necessary for us to think that it is a gift of God deputed for that use. Moreover, because of this, we ought to be the more careful not to abuse it for fear of soiling and contaminating it, converting it to our condemnation, where it was dedicated to our profit and use. If there were no other consideration than this alone, it ought indeed to move us to moderate the use of music, to make it serve all honest things, and that it should not give occasion for our giving free rein to dissolution or making ourselves effeminate in disordered delights, and that it should not become the instrument of lasciviousness nor of any shamelessness. Jonathan Edwards The most beautiful and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. Conclusion Does music matter? Does it matter to God? Should it matter to us? In my opinion, the evidence is overwhelming. The Bible's hundreds of references to music and its power and benefits, music's ability to give us expression for our affection to God and teach us what we should be feeling about God, a thoughtful understanding of the beauty and glory of God being reflected in beautiful music, and the testimony after testimony of church leaders throughout history all attest to the fact that music matters. Why all of a sudden, in the 20th and 21st centuries, do we insist that it doesn't matter? I'm not at this point making any points about specific styles or cultures. All I'm arguing is that music is important, and we should take the time to make careful and informed decisions about the music we allow into our lives and worship. The goal of this book is to help you make those kinds of informed decisions. Throughout the rest of the book, we will discuss each of the issues expressed in this chapter to help us understand the importance of music for life and worship. You've been listening to Remembering Zion, a special segment of By the Waters of Babylon. This has been an excerpt of Sound Worship, a guide to making musical choices in a noisy world. You can purchase copies of Sound Worship along with a teacher's guide for the book at Amazon.com or wherever books are sold.